Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago Still in the Dark Today is the 3rd of August 2014 and on this day in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. By the morning of Monday the 3rd of August, 1914, word had reached the major capitals of the world about the ultimatum Germany had sent the night before to Belgium, which requested an essential Belgian sovereignty sacrifice so that Germany could acquire a free hand to launch its Schlieffen plan. Having already occupied Luxembourg the day before, German Chancellor Bethmann Hallwig knew by now that there was no going back for German policy. For the Schlieffen plan to take effect, Germany would have to get an answer from Belgium and shortly declare war on France. These were the items on the German Chancellor's to-do list when he awoke on the morning of the 3rd of August. But for his British counterparts, the day appeared to be just as significant. Across the Channel, as the British cabinet met that morning at 11am, Following a weekend of stress for both the Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, and the Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, the gravity of the situation was palpable. Everyone at the government meeting knew that Grey was going to address the House of Commons, Britain's Parliament, at 3pm that day, and everyone knew that he would make an announcement about British policy now that news of Germany's ultimatum to Belgium was common knowledge. Despite the gravity of the situation, though, and the essential need of Grey and others to keep the government together, many still harboured reservations about intervention. Some even felt strongly enough to resign in protest. Three members of the government had already resigned, and now the first Commissioner of Works, Lord William Bucamp, was the latest to threaten his resignation in the event that intervention was approved. David Lloyd George, the latest MP to actually join the interventionist lobby after days of stringent resilience to intervention, urged unity in the face of such significant and troubling times. Indeed, in normal circumstances, such a wave of protests and resignations would be enough to topple a government, and in the previous days, the idea that Gray and his group of interventionists resigning to protest a policy of non-intervention had in some ways pulled the government closer together. In opposition, the Conservative Party loomed, and claimed to want to honour the same interventionist policy as Gray's group, 
A major point of those on the fence in government was then, was there any point in resisting intervention if their government would thereafter fall and then be replaced by the pro-interventionist conservatives anyway? The Conservative Party was said to be in favour of involvement because it would also delay the Irish question, and in the process the prospect of Ireland getting home rule. Certainly such a fact was not lost on Grey or Asquith, and one is reminded of Churchill's famous account of the last days of July, in which he describes events in Ireland fading into the background to be gradually replaced by the more important matters in Europe. The process had been gradual, that is for sure, but Britain now seemed at least to recognise the fact that the European situation warranted its full attention. By 12pm, Herbert Asquith had approved the mobilisation of the fleet that Churchill had already ensured in secret, and he had also issued the order for the full mobilisation of the army and the calling up of reservists. The cabinet meeting gave Frey the authorisation to announce in the later Commons meeting that Britain would defend the French coasts against German attack, and that she would take action if Germany happened to invade Belgium which surely now appeared likely, judging by the acknowledged Belgian refusal. By 2pm the meeting had been closed, to give Grey time to prepare for his speech delivery in an hour's time. He would have quite the audience. The House of Commons was packed with all its MPs for the first time since 1893, and the diplomatic gallery was full to bursting with people bringing their own seats to witness a slice of history. When the Foreign Secretary arrived alongside his government ministers, they were greeted with swarms of civilians eager to get a closer look. Had it not been for police assistance, David Lloyd George wrote, we could not have walked a yard on our way. Present in the diplomatic gallery were the ambassadors to Russia and France, who had both played their own small part in the current situation. Paul Cambon, the French ambassador, watched Gray in earnest as he rose from his seat to give his speech. The German ambassador Lichnowsky was not present, for fear of becoming a central focus for interventionists. Earlier, he and Gray had had a conversation in which Gray had warned the German that Britain would not be able to view the violation of Belgian neutrality calmly, and that he would like, if at all possible, to remain neutral. To which Lichnowsky had replied that Germany, even in the event of a conflict with Belgium, would maintain the integrity of Belgian territory with an additional promise that so long as England stayed neutral, Germany would not attack France's northern coastline. Grey, aware of what he was about to ask of Britain's House of Commons, listened politely, but promised nothing. In his own memoirs, Grey painted the entire ordeal as one in which he had little control over, since he was in the hands of fate and was merely following its direction. He wrote, At such a moment, there could neither be hope of personal success nor fear of personal failure. In a great crisis, a man who has to act or speak stands bare and stripped of choice. He has to do what it is in him to do. Just this is what he will and must do, and he can do no other. His account is certainly worthy of quotation, but one can judge for themselves, after the events of the previous days, whether Grey really was a mere messenger of fate as he claims, or whether he should or could have done more to influence those messages. It has not been possible to secure the peace of Europe, Grey began his speech, using characteristically indirect language. Grey insisted that he had given no promise of anything more than diplomatic support, and that any previous Anglo-French agreements were not an engagement to cooperate in war. Grey insisted that we are not parties, and we do not know the terms of that alliance. 
when addressing the Franco-Russian Entente. The first section of his speech was then designed to allay the fears within the non-interventionists that Britain had committed itself all along. Even though committing itself, now, was Grey's end goal. For many years we have had a long-standing relationship with France, Grey continued, interrupted by a vocal MP who shouted, And with Germany! An act that seems to have rocked Grey's confidence momentarily until he reached the moral question of his speech. When continuing to speak about France, he said, uh, but how far this friendship constitutes obligation, let every man look into his own heart, and his own feelings. I construe it myself as I feel it, but I do not wish to urge upon anyone else more than their feelings dictate as to what they should feel about this obligation. Gray then established what his feelings about this friendship were, again with the issue of the French coasts, by exclaiming that, The French coasts are absolutely undefended. And then Gray added that his own feeling was that, If a foreign fleet, engaged in a war which France has not sought, and in which she had not been the aggressor, came down the English Channel and bombarded and battered the undefended coasts of France, we could not stand aside. Gray then explained that if Britain did decide to stand aside, then France would have to pull her fleet from the Mediterranean to defend its north coasts, which would then lead the British fleet outnumbered to Italy's fleet. The question of Italy now arose. A strange argument to take, when it was well known among Gray's government that Italy had declined to join the Central Powers after all. Gray's theory was that Italy would jump at the chance to exploit Britain's weakness by attacking its vulnerable trade routes in the Mediterranean. Vulnerable only because of the French naval exit there to protect itself. Gray then did something yet stranger and revealed that Lignowski had earlier informed him that If we pledge ourselves to neutrality, then Germany would agree that its fleet would not attack the northern coast of France. This meant that Gray's argument for intervention so far rested, as John McNeekin in his book July 1914 put it, on a naval attack on France's Channel coasts that the Germans had expressly promised not to carry out if England remained neutral, and a far-fetched hypothetical involving an Italian threat to Britain's Mediterranean shipping interests. After appearing to lose his way, Gray pulled out the Belgian trump card. He pointed to French guarantee of the request not to violate Belgian integrity, and the German evasive response, while rounding off the issue by revealing that the rumours were true, and that Germany had, the night before, issued an ultimatum to Belgium. Incredibly, Gray seemed to be willing to scrap this trump card too, when he revealed that, I am not yet quite sure how far it has reached me in an accurate form, and failing to reveal the fact that Belgium had refused to accept the ultimatum, though Downing Street had certainly known of this fact, since Britain's ambassador to Belgium told them such in a telegram sent at 10.55am, and the message had then been received well in time of the speech itself. Gray claimed that, We have great and vital interests in the independence, and integrity is the least part, of Belgium. Gray then echoed Gladstone, the great British statesman and moralist, when he quoted him by asking if Britain would stand quietly by and witness the perpetration of the direst crime that ever stained the pages of history, and thus become perpetrators in the sin. Painting a dizzying picture of events, Gray argued that if Belgium and thereafter France were beaten to her knees, then the independence of Holland will follow, followed by, as Gray understood it, Denmark. This prediction of how events would pan out, which in fact would be perpetrated by Germany, just not the current iteration that Grey addressed, certainly would have roused the concern of those who heard it. 
though no proof of course was supplied to the German desire to do this. And it sounds like a difficult prediction to convince those present of the accuracy of, considering some clear residual feelings of affection for the German Empire. Grey continued uninterrupted. We are going to suffer, I'm afraid, terribly in this war, Grey claimed, in a prediction that would turn out to be tragically accurate, though nobody present could have imagined how much. Whether we are in it or stand aside. However, standing aside would involve throwing out the Belgian treaty obligations, meaning that Britain would sacrifice our respect and good name and reputation before the world. After listening for over an hour and a half, Grey seemed finished. An eyewitness noted how the house broke into rapturous applause, signifying the answer. While another noted that Grey's speech, I think, satisfied all the house, with perhaps two or three exceptions, that we were compelled to participate. But someone that he had failed to convince was the German ambassador Lichnowsky, who had stayed away from the common speech, but had been apprised of its contents. He reported to the German Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Gottlieb von Jagow, on Monday night that, Although the speech is marked by a deep distrust of our political intentions, one can nevertheless gather from it that the British government has in all probability no immediate intention of taking part in the conflict or abandoning the neutrality she has so far observed. We can regard the speech as satisfactory. I'm convinced that the British government will strive to remain neutral. Remarkable. As Lichnowsky's report home was, we should not be at all surprised that, yet again, Grey had not instilled within the German ambassador any sure impression of what British policy would entail. Berlin would thus know on the night of the 3rd of August that Britain was disapproving of its violation of Belgian sovereignty, but that Britain would remain neutral so long as Germany didn't attack French northern coasts and put her in a difficult position with her semi-ally. This was the picture Lichnowsky had. Regardless of the fact that Grey at this point did want intervention and believed in its necessity, not to mention the fact that years of planning between the Anglo-French military staffs had debated on their joint response to a German attack, which was expected through Belgium in at least some form, thanks to the capture of previous German military documents. Lichnowsky's assurance that Britain would remain neutral would have been music to the ears of Berlin for another reason too, since at 6pm on this day 100 years ago, the German ambassador was due to deliver the declaration of war to the French government. Dressing it up as the result of border violations, but coming as a clear result of the German chief of staff von Maltke and his incessant need to stick to the terms of the Schlieffen plan, the German ambassador to France, Baron Schoen, having been delayed after French patriots attacked his car en route, finally arrived at the French Foreign Office just before 7pm, a whole hour later than expected. Schoen solemnly handed René Viviani, the French Prime Minister, the declaration just after 7pm, which stipulated unremarkably that the German Empire considers itself in a state of war with France, following the aforementioned border violations. He asked for his passports and left by train, while the French ambassador in Berlin did the same. Yet again, the German Chancellor Bethmann Hallwig had declared war first. This was hardly the way to go about demonstrating to Britain the good-natured aspects of German foreign policy, yet having already declared war on Russia and delivered the now-refused ultimatum to Belgium, perhaps nothing would by now have dug Germany out of its hole. What is striking about Gray's speech to the Commons was also that he conspicuously failed to announce that he was about to send an ultimatum to Germany to evacuate Belgian soil.
His winding speech had apparently drawn the majority in, but Gray himself seemed careful not to state any definite policy courses within it, as was his usual style. It had the result of confusing Lichnowsky and in the process Germany as we have seen, but it even seems to have left Churchill a tad perplexed, since the First Lord of the Admiralty had to ask the Foreign Secretary, What happens now? after his speech had ended. Gray also gave similar assurances to the French ambassador Paul Cambon, and promised that Britain would defend the French coasts if she were attacked. Yet, with Germany's ambassador having promised not to attack them, one wonders if Gray was simply telling the Frenchman what he desperately wanted to hear, while simultaneously hoping that Germany would walk into yet another policy disaster. However, when Cabinet met that night, at 6pm to discuss the finer points of Gray's speech, no ultimatum was drafted up to be sent to Berlin. The furthest Gray would go, it seemed, was a telegram to the British ambassador to Germany residing in Berlin, noting him to the effect that His Majesty's government are bound to protect against this violation of a treaty to which Germany is a party in common with themselves, and must respect an assurance that the demand made upon Belgium will not be proceeded with, and that her neutrality will be respected by Germany. Perhaps this was the reason why no ultimatum had been issued. Gray and the cabinet did not know yet if Germany would actually go ahead and invade Belgium. Yet even this was only sent off the next morning on Tuesday the 4th of August, after its contents had been debated for most of the meeting. When he arrived home that evening, after yet another eventful day in which he had played a major role, Gray noted the lamps being lit outside, and made the now famous remark that The lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. Indeed, the lamps would soon be extinguished, leaving Britain and other states at war in darkness. In the case of Germany, though, fumbling along with only hints of British protest and indications of its distaste, its statesmen were in a different kind of darkness than the one Grey predicted when it came to British policy. Having not seen clarity in Grey's decisions, policy, or expressions since the crisis had begun in earnest, Germany seemed doomed to commit one blunder after another in rapid succession with the result that the two greatest powers in the world in 1914 were soon to go to war, while one, and perhaps both, remained still in the dark as to what the other meant, felt, and wanted. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 